0: Welcome dear listener, and thank you for joining me for this special Halloween edition of Dead Hand Radio. I'm your host, Andrew Hall. What we're about to embark on throughout these coming days leading up to Halloween is a series of interviews with people from all walks of life who've experienced some of the most harrowing, spine-chilling tales you've ever heard. We're talking ghost stories, haunted buildings, cursed lands, myths, legends and lore, the likes of which many have never heard before. Some of my guests are new most are returning visitors of the show and have agreed to share with us in some cases for the first time ever their personal experiences of unexplained and hair-raising stories from beyond the veil. Consider this your final warning. Those who choose to proceed may have their sanity challenged, question reality, or lose their mind with fear from these tales of the unknown and unexplained. And now, the Dead Hand Radio Halloween Special.
1: Hello, I'm the author Matthew Kressel, and you're listening to Dead Hand Radio with my buddy, Andrew Hall.
0: welcome back to dead hand radio matt thanks for joining me
1: oh thank you for having me back always a pleasure
0: as we discussed this is the halloween special and we briefly went over some ideas to talk about that you have an interest in Uh, do you want to just kind of give a quick summary of what we're going to be talking about
1: So one of my many, many interests, um, because I am somebody of many and varying interests as uh, people who listened to the last time I was on the show may be aware of, is the sinking of the Titanic, which anybody who's seen the James Cameron film or read Walter Lord's The Night to Remember or even seen the film based on that will know the basics of the Titanic story. Famous luxury liner sinks on its maiden voyage in 1912, strikes an iceberg, 1,500 people died. But one of the things that's interesting for me was somebody who has a slight interest in the paranormal is actually at the very beginning of Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember, that I read when I was in the third grade uh, back in the 90s is Titanic Fever Hit. And that's the story of a book published by a guy named Morgan Robertson in 1898 called The Wreck of the Titan. And it's one of many examples of people who would seem to have had Premonitions or omens of what happened the night the Titanic went down in 1912. And also uh, some of the strange experiences that some of the people at the wreck site have had over the years as well.
0: Cool. So let's drill down on that for just a moment. There are some uncanny similarities between that book, and I- I'll ask you to remind me of the name of that book and the actual sinking of the Titanic. What was the name of the book?
1: So the book is called uh, The Wreck of the Titan or Futility. Um, And it was published in 1898. Morgan Robertson was the guy who wrote the book. He was sort of a pulp author of the time. And the book was basically one of these kind of melodramatic sea stories that were very popular sort of at the end of the 19th century, in the early 20th century. And it's the story of this disgraced U.S. Navy officer who ends up working as a deckhand on this big ship called the Titan. Uh, The Titan's about 800 feet long. It can travels about 24 knots. It's got 16 lifeboats, and it's making its way back and forth across the Atlantic when, in mid-April, it strikes an iceberg on its starboard side and sinks with an incredible loss of life.
0: Okay, so how long before the Titanic actually sank was this book written it was you said it was 1898 right 18
1: 1898 so 14 years if i'm doing my math correctly okay and it was it was another 11 years before the ship actually began being built at harland and wolf in uh belfast Northern what's today northern ireland so it predates the sinking of the ship by a considerable margin
0: and what was the actual year that it uh that the titanic sank was it Nin-
1: 1912
0: oh okay 1912 so and that happened uh, in sometime in april of 1912 yep. wasn't
1: it okay mid-april mid-atlantic and the iceberg hit on the starboard side of the titanic <laughs> as it did with the titan um it's a story that's become fairly well known over the years thanks to walter lord dragging it out when uh he wrote a night to remember which was published as i said in the 50s and it's been featured in a, in a number of things over the years. Um, I don't know if people remember a show that Jonathan Frakes used to host on Fox called Beyond Belief Factor Fiction. Um, but that, it was actually featured there as a segment on there. There's a show from the late 50s called One Step Beyond that was kind of a version. It was kind of a more reality-based version of the twilight zone, I suppose, and one of their early episodes uh, dealt with premonitions of the sinking as well, including Morgan Robertson's. Uh,
0: So there were some unbelievable uh, similarities between the ship in that book and the actual ship, the Titanic. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about some of those similarities?
1: Of course. So part of it was is that they were very similar in size. So the Titan, Robertson's fictional ship, was about 800 feet long uh, versus the Titanic, which was 882 feet long. Uh, They had a very similar displacement as in, you know, how basically how much water the ship displaces when it's in the ocean. And they were traveling at roughly the same speed. They had the same top speed and were traveling at roughly the same speed when they hit the iceberg. And as I said, one of the really uncanny similarities for me is the fact that he even predicted which side of the ship the iceberg hit, which is, to be fair, you know, there's only, you have port and you have starboard. So it's, it's basically a coin toss, but it does feel you add everything together and it is kind of a very it's a very odd circumstance to look back on and certainly after the ship sank uh there were people who credited uh robertson with kind of you know basically went to him and said are you psychic did you have visions of something happening and he just kind of shook his head and to be fair i mean he was he was a writer as i said of sort of melodramatic sea stories so clearly he was somebody with some knowledge of the shipbuilding world so I, I tend to think, if you want to take a skeptical point of view to it, um, that he just had enough kind of knowledge to put together a story that happened to be very, very similar. Because there's, there are points of difference as well. For one thing, the ship doesn't break in two when it sinks. It actually capsizes. And the number of survivors off of it is actually quite small, if memory serves, because it's been years since I read the book. Um, there's only like a couple of people who survive off the ship. And they do so by climbing on an iceberg, which in its own right has a has a freaky connection, potential connection to the actual sinking of the ship, uh, which I can talk about if you want me to.
0: OK, but first, first, um, the some of the similarities in the ship that uh, kind of because I just heard this a retelling of this uh, in that book that I was reading or listening to audio book by Ingo Swan. Um, Psychic Literacy is the name of the book I'm listening to. Mm. But he talks about this, this, uh, um, this whole situation that we're discussing right now, the similarity in it. And the, the author, can you say his name again?
1: Morgan Robertson.
0: Okay. I'm probably not going to remember that, but anyway. <laughs> he, he nails the exact number of propellers on, mm-hmm. on his ship Versus the Titanic, uh, like you said, the the water displacement is very similar. Now, the fact that he um, he kind of shrugged off any type of psychic foreknowledge when people approached him about it, it, it could be that he was being uh, sincere, and uh, you know, just his knowledge of shipbuilding was was what. Um, the driving factor in him creating this story but could it also be that during that time the the late 1800s there was a real big stigma even worse than there is today about people with psychic abilities
1: it's a possibility i mean this is also the era of of spiritualism uh, which was, it was having sort of its first big boost. And you had people like uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, for example, uh, William T. Stead who, from the UK, who's got his own Titanic connection we can talk about here shortly. Um, people like that who were very interested to, in it. It doesn't really take off in many ways till after, during, and after the First World War, where you have the mass, you have the surely mass, you know, the truly mass casualties on the Western Front of the First World War. But it was something that was kind of already in the air at the time and certainly you have people like Thomas Edison for example who are talking about building machines where you'll be able to talk with the dead for example because he saw that as a logical extension of the phonograph so it's it's it may be a little bit of both I mean Robertson had another one that was quite kind of interesting in that um, two years after the Titanic sank he published an updated edition of the book um, that contained some short other short stories in it one of which is a story called Beyond the Spectrum and beyond the spectrum is interesting because he basically predicts a version of the of World War II. He predicts a Japanese attack on the American fleet in Hawaii, and predicts um, the use of a new weapon using ultraviolet light to help end the war with, which isn't which isn't quite the atomic bomb, but it is a very it's a very odd thing to predict not only a attack by the japanese on the american fleet in hawaii i.e pearl harbor but then you also predict using a new secret super weapon to also end the war with
0: Hmm. so is this the same dude who who wrote the book about the titanic oh yeah
1: he he wrote he published that story it's called beyond the spectrum in 1914 uh, so that's two years after the Titanic sank, but it's interesting that he included it in the same edition, in some of the same editions as reprinted versions of *Wreck of the Titan*. So it's it's interesting to think, you know, maybe maybe he had some insight that the rest of us that the rest of us didn't, perhaps. Uh, but he certainly wasn't alone in people who may have predicted the sinking.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's wild. What kind of took you down this path to start research? Because you're writing a book on these kind of weird occurrences now, right?
1: Well, I'm doing a book on uh, Cold War cold cases, which one of which has a tangential connection to the Titanic, which kind of led me back into this field. Um, there's a sort of strange happenings involving the Titanic. Um, partly because when the wreck was found in 1985, Robert Ballard, who found it, had connections with Naval intelligence. And it's a fact that isn't quite as well-known perhaps as it should have been, that in some ways, the equipment that was used to find the wreck in 1985, as well as the expedition itself, were funded by the US Navy. And also him going off and finding the wreck was in some ways a cover story for him looking at two lost US Navy nuclear submarines including the USS Scorpion, which sank in 1968 under very strange circumstances. Um, but there's also the odd story when the Titanic was found that there's a newspaper in the UK called The Observer. And The Observer got to jump on the story, as in they reported it almost before anybody else did. And the reason they reported it before anybody else did is that somebody at the British Ministry of Defense, specifically through the Royal Navy, apparently tipped off a reporter at the Observer that the Titanic was about to be found. Years later, um, one of my online acquaintances, a Titanic researcher named Paul Lee, interviewed the journalist. And according to his source, the journalist's source, there was a Royal Navy submarine that was tailing the NOR, which was the ship that was in charge of the expedition, was carrying a camera sled two miles down to photograph the wreckage. But what was interesting to him was the fact that they knew, the Royal Navy seemed to know where the Titanic was to begin with years before anybody else did, enough that if there was a submarine near the North, they could report back and go, they should be coming over the Titanic any time now. So there seems to be some circumstantial evidence through Paul Lee's research that somebody, whether it was the U.S. Navy or the Royal Navy likely testing equipment years ahead of time, came across the wreck site at some point, probably in the 1970s.
0: Okay, so the the wreck of the Titanic wasn't even discovered until 1985,
1: is that what you said? Yeah, it was found September the 1st, 1985.
0: Okay, and somehow the British Navy knew, had already known where the, the wreck was or pretty close to where it was.
1: Yeah, there seems to be a strong circumstantial case um, that, because, as I said, because somebody at the uh, Ministry of Defence source tipped off the Observer newspaper, and when research was done later trying to trace back the source and how they knew it, somebody at the MOD had a good enough idea of where the wreck site was to tip somebody off that this was going to happen. I'm blanking on who the name of the journalist at the Observer was, but Paul Lee has a long article about this whole topic on his website, uh, which I recommend. I believe it's paulleecom slash Titanic. And one of the things he talks about there is that the Observer wanting confirmation of the story called up Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, which is based in Massachusetts, to get confirmation of the story. And the Woods Hole people were like, "Um, we don't know how you know this because we just got confirmation of this. So it's just one of the many strange stories uh, regarding the Titanic.
0: I may have a little bit of insight into that. And this is just purely speculation, but it goes along with what we're talking about within the psychic realm. And during that time in the 70s, the U.S. had developed a program called Remote Viewing. You familiar mm-hmm. with it i am okay so this is where the book i'm reading about was written by ingo swan where he comes into play um he's the the person responsible for developing the protocols that the program that was used by the us military put into place and they were using this remote viewing to basically spy on the russians psychically and the only reason they did that is because the russians had been doing it to us for decades right um now is it possible that through remote viewing they somehow discovered the the final resting place of the titanic
1: i suppose it's a possibility i do know there's also a story in howard bloom's book out there where he tells the story of a remote viewer who was basically tasked with finding, uh, I believe it was the Typhoon class, it was the big Soviet ballistic missile sub. And, And at one point, not only did they find the sub, they found a, well, we'll call it what it is, a UFO hovering above it. So clearly they were looking for things under the sea. So it wouldn't surprise me in that regard if somebody doing a remote viewing looking for, say, a Soviet sub or something off the, off the Grand Banks at Newfoundland, which is the approximate area the Titanic went down, may have stumbled across it. Um, though Paul has uncovered some interesting research of oceanographic stuff that was being done at that, per- at that time as well that came either very close to or went right over the wreck site. So it could even be a little bit of both for that matter, but it's, it's an interesting possibility to be sure.
0: Yeah, that is very interesting. Anything else about the, the Titanic that really st- stood out to you?
1: There's, there's some other stories uh, regarding some people who had some premonitions and also some of the stuff that's happened with people exploring the wreck of the year since. One of the other people who seems to have had a prediction of some sense of the ship going down was a guy who actually got on the ship. He was a British uh, writer and newspaper editor named William T. Stead. And in two different stories that he published in the 1880s and 1890s, he imagined a ship having a collision with an iceberg in the mid-Atlantic and sinking. And that was a story that was published, I believe, in 1892. And another one of those odd coincidences, if you want to call it that, is a story he wrote in 1886, where he had uh, Captain Smith, who ended up being the captain of the Titanic at this point was commanding a ship known as the majestic and had the majestic coming across the victims of a shipwreck. Now, I, it's been years since I've read that story. So I don't specifically remember if that ship had hit an iceberg or not, but it does seem odd uh, that Stead would have imagined that. And then of course ended up getting on the Titanic and went down with the ship in 1912.
0: Yeah, that is strange. I, I also, um, Learned recently that there was a um, there there was even more predictors that uh, that kind of indicated that this maiden voyage was doomed from the beginning. Um, There were more reservations canceled for this particular voyage than any other uh, any other ship in history.
1: I I think that's been slightly exaggerated, based on some research that some people with more knowledge of the the Titanic than I have. It's certainly true that there were a lot that there were a number of people, particularly prominent people, who canceled passage on the ship for various reasons. But the one that probably fits this description best is Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was supposed to, who actually had a whole suite booked in first class on the ship, and who canceled, I think, something like three days before the Titanic was supposed to sail. And his whole reason for canceling was because, um, obviously, they were coming back from Europe. His mother had a bad feeling about the trip, so they decided that they would stay in England just a little bit longer instead of getting on the Titanic, and of course, we know what happened there. The thing with Vanderbilt that's interesting as well is that about three years later, Vanderbilt was one of the the 100-plus Americans who died when the Lusitania sank off the coast of Ireland after being torpedoed by a German U-boat. So clearly his luck ran out there. But the other strange thing with the Titanic is is that one of the things that gets forgotten about is that in the early months of 1912, there was a massive coal strike by Britain's coal miners. And as a result of that, a lot of ships simply couldn't sail. And the White Star Line, wanting the publicity of their big new liner sailing, transferred passengers from other ships to the Titanic, especially in second and third class. And one of the last of the Titanic survivors who passed away in 1996, Ava Hart, would tell the story for much of the rest of her life that um, her father and mother had booked passage on a ship called the Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia had gotten stuck in port because of a coal strike. And because the Philadelphia was owned by the same overbranching company that also owned the Titanic, they were offered passage on the Titanic, which her father readily accepted. But her mother had extremely bad feelings about the trip, about going on the Titanic to the point she would not sleep at night aboard the ship. That the entire time the Titanic was sailing from Southampton toward New York, her mother slept during the day and stayed awake at night, either reading books or knitting. So her mother was up at 11.40 p.m. on the Sunday night when the ship hit the iceberg, and happened to hear and feel the sensation of the ship as it passed alongside the Berg and actually woke up the husband, Ava's father, and insisted that he had to go up on deck to see what was going on. And it's because of that that Ava and her mother survived, but her mother never had another kind of psychic prediction for the rest of her life.
0: The years after the Titanic was lost at sea, between the time it sank and it was found, uh, why did it take so long for the for the wreckage to be found
1: part of why it took so long to be found was simply because navigation technology in 1912 was not the most advanced thing in the world and the distress position that was actually radioed out by the titanic's wireless operators was based actually on a star sighting done about six hours before so as a result of that the Titanic's distress position was actually 14 miles west, west northwest, I should say, of where the Titanic actually is today. So, and it was just happened to be kind of by luck that the rescue ship, the Carpathia, actually picked up the survivors when it did, because the ocean currents actually took them, took the lifeboats actually far enough south that the Carpathia came across them trying to get to that spot.
0: So, even if people, that were looking for the wreckage if they were looking in the area where the survivors were found they were still looking in the wrong area
1: right and there it took i mean people landed on the moon before people found the titanic if you need a kind of an idea of how the technologies kind of developed between outer space and inner space in some ways it's easier to get it's easier to get to outer space than it is to get to the bottom of the ocean and the you know we we, can t- we chatted a bit earlier about the possibility that somebody found the wreck prior to 1985. But the first public expeditions to look for the wreck didn't occur until 1980. There was a Texas oilman named Jack Grimm, who in the early 80s funded not one, not two, but three different expeditions to find the wreck. And as it happens, basically was just looking in completely the wrong area. And Bob Ballard's team uh, was actually a team that was made up of both US researchers and French researchers. And the French actually spent something like six weeks before the Americans actually got there towing this torpedo-shaped sonar thing back and forth across the ocean. And they got quite close to the wreck site at one point and then just kind of wandered away from it. But part of the problem people had looking for the Titanic was everybody kind of assumed prior to 1985 that the Titanic went down in one piece. So what everybody was looking for was an 882 foot long object at the bottom of the ocean. And the problem is, is that the Titanic did not sink in one piece. It, everybody who's seen the James Cameron film knows the, tit- the ship broke in two when it sank. So it's actually about a 400 foot section and a 300 foot section separated by half a mile on a, a flat plain at the bottom of the North Atlantic.
0: And how? what's the estimated depth of that?
1: Uh, approximately 12,500 feet so you're talking you're talking two and a half miles so if you if you want a kind of a good metaphor for what it's like trying searching for the titanic imagine a commercial airliner towing a car on two and a half miles of cable trying to find a particular building in the middle of the great plains
0: fair enough yeah that's a good metaphor Uh, So, okay, that that brings it into perspective a little bit better why it took so many years for technology to develop enough to where they could actually find it.
1: Yeah, it's not as simple as throwing on some scuba gear and jumping in the ocean. Um, Because where the Titanic is two and a half miles down, A, it's pitch black, so you can't see anything. It's freezing cold water, but because of the depth, you also have to deal with the pressure, which is something like uh, 6,000 pounds per square
0: inch. I don't, is there any, I mean, can a submarine even go that deep?
1: Most of if you think of the big, you know, if if you think of the big submarines that the navies and stuff uses, the answer is no. Most of them have a maximum depth of about 1500 to 2000 feet. Now there are what are known as submersibles. These are a very, very small craft which are essentially built around metal spears that have exteriors built around them usually of titanium and there's only a handful of them that can dive down to the wreck site. Um, there's Alvin, which was operated by Woods Hull, which was used when Ballard went to the wreck properly in 1986. There's a French submarine known as the Nautil. Uh, it's a bright yellow submarine. So, literally, a yellow submarine if, if you're a Beatles fan. And the Russians have, the Russians actually have a pair known as the Mir submersibles. Um, They're the only two submersibles in the world that can dive kind of in tandem with one another. Again, James Cameron used them for the Titanic movie that I'm sure everybody's familiar with. And also in the various expeditions when he went back to the wreck during the noughties.
0: Okay, but so those submersibles are like little robots. They don't have a human being inside them, right?
1: You can get up to three people inside of those. Uh, inside most of those so you can get people inside of those and those can actually dive down to those to those depths and some of them can go even deeper than that Um, but it's it's not easy it's costly and it's about as logistically complicated as sending somebody to the moon and there's about as much chance of rescue uh, if something happens and you get stranded down there
0: so who who was the team that finally found it or who led the team that finally found it
1: it was led by uh, Robert Ballard, uh, who's a, now a famous oceanographer here in the United States, and uh, who was teamed up between his team from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and IFMER, which is the French Oceanographic Agency. And IFRMUR operates the Nathil submarine that's been used a lot for various uh, artifact recovery missions throughout the 90s.
0: So that must have been a pretty big win for them when they found it.
1: It was, um, there's, some, there's some drama that happens between the American and French sides of the expedition, which I think has led to some bad blood, which is part of the reason why the French have had no problems going back to the wreck site to recover artifacts, um, because at one point, the only people in the world who knew where the wreck was were the members of the French and American teams. And Ballard, who was at one point pro-recovering artifacts, ended up turning around after a couple of the museums turned down his offer and said, nope, nobody should recover anything. It's a memorial, et cetera, et cetera. And the French kind of went, we spent God knows how much money off of this. We didn't get any, you know, I think the idea everybody kind of had was is that there was going to be film and book and TV rights sold off the off the expedition. And something happened in Nova Scotia. I think what happened was the American media put down pressure on the Woods Hole representatives who were on shore. And what was supposed to happen was, is that Ifemur was gonna release the photos from 1985 from the 85 expedition at the exact same time that the Americans would. And what happened was is that the American side of the expedition broke its promise. And as a result, Ifemur basically got stuck with a bill that they couldn't pay. So there's some drama and there's some bad blood there, which is why Iphemer has had, as I said, no problem during the 90s going out there and doing uh, artifact recovery. Um, Which in a way, I mean, that's that's a whole controversial side of the Titanic story. There are people who feel it is a grave site, which it is. And we can talk about that a bit here in a second. But also there was a realization in the 90s through scientific research that there's a form of bacteria known as rusticles And if you've seen pictures of the Titanic wreck site, you'll notice like these weird barnacle things growing off the ship. And those things are literally eating the iron and the metal out of the Titanic. Um, It was estimated at one point in the 90s that about 20% of the Titanic had literally been eaten away at that point. So the artifacts will one day be all that's left of the ship. So... For my money, with that knowledge, I have no problem with them breaking artifacts up because it's, it's a way of preserving that story and the, preserving the memory of the people who went down that night.
0: I guess it leaves me with a sense of uncertainty of how to proceed because it is a gravesite. How many people went down with the ship? 1,500 or so?
1: About 1,500 or so. I think the most recent number that somebody's come up with is about uh, 1,490, give or take.
0: I I see the value in recovering the artifacts, but not for profitable gain. Why was it such a a huge story? I mean, versus uh, 9-11-2001, where 3,000 people died or World War II. I mean, it's compared, it's comparable to those uh, on the scale of tragedy, is it not?
1: I think it is, and certainly uh, in the public imagination, you know, there's people who can't tell you anything about the early 1900s, but they can tell you all about the Titanic, for example.
0: Um, what, what is it that captures people's, uh, you know, their attention so much about this one particular event?
1: I there's there's a saying about Stonehenge and the mysteries about Stonehenge that every age gets the Stonehenge uh, Stonehenge that it wants or that it deserves. And I think the thing about the Titanic story is that as even as soon as it sank in 1912, people were already finding ways of reading into the tragedy. You know, there's a, a book called Down with the Old Canoe by Stephen Beale that was published in the late 90s. And it was kind of a social history of the wreck. And as soon as the ship, was basically at the bottom of the ocean and everybody knew what had happened. Everybody kind of jumped on boards with readings about it from uh, suffragettes, uh, you know, this is the era of women trying to get the right to vote to, you know, conversations about class and even race. Um, It's, the Titanic has found a way time and again over the last century to speak to different people about different things. Um, I think for some people it's nostalgia for a bygone age in this beautiful ship, for some people it's the mysteries of the things that happened that night. Uh, you know, there's a ship that stood still maybe 10 or 15 miles away that did nothing to come to the age of the Titanic, for example. Um, there's the stories of the survivors. It's, it's a human drama played out on this kind of 900 foot stage in the middle of the Atlantic if nothing else. And I think that all of us can look at the events of that night and we can go, what would I have done? Would I have been a hero? Would I have been a coward? Would I have lived? Would I have died? Would I have done the right thing? Uh, What would I have done to have survived? And I think that speaks to something inside of all of us.
0: You just look at the movie, The Titanic by James Cameron, the highest grossing movie in history to to that, to the, you know, when it was released.
1: Yeah, to that time, and only surpassed uh, by James Cameron's own Avatar and then uh, Avengers: Endgame. If you need an idea of the phenomenon that that movie was at the time,
0: yeah. So that just speaks to the people are still enamored uh, by this story. Yeah, and uh, it's just, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a big deal. But to me, in the scope of things, I I never really thought it was. You know, I I, I don't know. I, I can't say that I didn't think it was a big deal. I know it's a big deal, but to me, it seems like um, people read in it to it way more uh, than it deserves credit for. Possibly. That, that mean... could be a, a little bit of a, mm, I, I guess, a biased view of things. But it seems to me like the one of the reasons... That people give it so much attention is because the number of affluent people that were aboard that ship who died i think
1: that led to the press coverage at the time of it to be sure because it was a bit like uh, for lack of a better way of putting it it would be like a concord full of you know rich and famous people hollywood celebrities you name it uh all getting on that planet disappearing somewhere over the atlantic um So I think that that led to the press coverage of it, and I think the fact that it was so well covered at the time, and the fact that there were the investigations by both the US Senate and by the British Board of Trade in London meant that there was a huge amount of documentary evidence that people could go back and consult later. Um, So it allows, you know, and it's a part of it, as I said, Titanic speaks to different people for different reasons. Uh, as I said, there's people who come to it through, you know, the deep ocean aspect of it. There's people who come to it through historical mystery. You know, it's, it's a story that has something to give to everybody. Um, and I think it's certainly possible that you can read, you can read what you want to into it. I would agree with that much. And I think that that's part of the lasting appeal of people's interest in the topic. Hey,
0: we're talking about it, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, maybe i made this up or i heard something but was there supposedly a curse associated with the titanic
1: there's various urban legends connected to it um there's one that claims that there was an egyptian mummy who was loaded onto the ship uh that was in the ship's cargo hold and it was one of the few things that popped up when the ship went down um people have been through the cargo manifests and have looked through various records in the UK and nobody has found any proof of an Egyptian mummy uh, being loaded onto the Titanic, let alone popping up on, popping up at the wreck site and, you know, floating to the surface, etc. Um, there's also one story, which is absolutely not true that the ship's identification number in port and keep in mind the ship was built in Belfast in Northern Ireland uh, just before the Irish Civil War and Irish independence. And those who know anything about Belfast, Northern Ireland, of course, the long simmering relations between Protestants and Catholics that have boiled over at various points. But there's a story that the Titanic's registration number, if you looked at it in the reflection of the water or in the reflection of the mirror, said no Pope. So the ship was somehow unholy. Uh, but that's, that story is completely 100% false. Uh, the Titanic's identification number in port, which can in fact be seen on its propeller blades at the bottom of the Atlantic today, was 401, uh, and there is no way that you can make that say no Pope. But it's it's a good story, um, and it's popped up in numerous books and documentaries over the years. Um, it's another one of those Titanic stories that isn't true, but won't quite go away either.
0: Are there any ghost stories associated with the Titanic?
1: if it's ghost stories per se but there's there've been indications of some uh, high strangeness for lack of a better way of putting it at the wreck site um various expeditions that have been down there who've gone to the stern section and as people will remember from the james cameron film the stern is where hundreds and hundreds of people congregated at the ship's final moments and basically clung on to life before the ship went down there's been reports from various expeditions over the years of equipment failures, of lights suddenly going out. Um, in 1992, during an expedition, was 1991, excuse me, during a 1991 expedition, there the two mirror submarines were down there, and both mirror submarines lost contact with the surface for a brief period of time. Um, officially, that was put down to where they were positioned at the wreck site just happened to cut off their line of sight to the surface with surface ship um there's a writer named charles pelangrino who's been to the wreck a couple of times including with james cameron and there's uh stories he tells in two of his books one of which was that in a 1996 expedition to the wreck they were bringing up artifacts from the surface and they're from a place near the stern and one of the things that they brought up uh was what they what they officially designated were lamb bones that had been buried in the sediment that had been attached to a plate and that still had little pieces of meat still attached to the bones having been at the bottom of the ocean for all of these years what he's also talks about shortly there is they came across parts of a shirt and some buttons in the same area of sediment And they ended up declaring a moratorium on recovering artifacts from that particular area simply because there was a strong possibility that somewhere in the sediments preserved might be human remains. And he tells another story from the 2001 expedition that became the basis for the James Cameron documentary Ghosts of the Abyss, which I do recommend that at one point going through the bow section with a uh, remotely operated vehicle they don't know for sure because there's no way at the moment to recover things from inside the wreck and there was some discrepant there were some arguments between the various members of the expedition looking at the footage but uh he would he will swear up and down they found a human skull inside the wreck and there's certainly a possibility because the deeper they've gone into the wreck they have found glass and wood preserved deep inside the wreck so there is a possibility that somewhere deep inside the wreck there may be human remains to this day
0: is is that even possible for human remains to to stay preserved in that type of an environment for that long
1: keep in mind it's freezing cold water there's no light and there's very little oxygen they recovered at one point in the 1990s a guy's wallet that had gotten buried in the sediment that still had business cards and paper money inside that was still readable and that was in the 1990s so that had been down there about 80 80 90 years oh, okay so it's certainly possible at one point it, it was thought not to be because one of the other things about the wreck site is if you go around the debris field that lies in between the two big chunks of the ship um, there's an interesting phenomenon that Ballard first noted in looking at photos from 1985, 1986. You will find matching pairs of shoes lying right next to each other. And shoes tend to be treated, especially in 1912 with tannic, with leather preservative, et cetera, which would keep them from being eaten away by sea organisms in a way that, for lack of a better way of putting it, tissue and clothing would not be. Uh, So the thought was for the longest time that there would not be any remains found inside the ship. That being said, we also at one point thought on that same basis that there would be no wood found inside the ship and probably no surviving pieces of glass. And both of those have been found, as I said, deep within the ship. So it's certainly possible in my own mind that there could be there. And if you want a way of bringing this full circle back into the world of fiction, Years before they got to that point inside the wreck to know it was there, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a novel called The Ghost from the Grand Banks in the early 90s, imagining a race between two different groups to raise the different halves of the Titanic in 2012, which at that point was still in the future. And across two or three chapters in that book, one of the teams that's working on the bow section comes across three bodies that have basically been mummified and preserved inside one of the third class cabins. And in, in the early 90s, that was thought to be well science fiction. It's Arthur C. Clarke, after all. But with everything that we now know about the wreck site, it certainly doesn't appear that that's the case. Um, we don't know. We don't know for sure what could be down there, and it's one of the the many, many mysteries of the deep, and one of the remaining mysteries of the wreck.
0: Yeah, there are many mysteries of the deep, and uh, I mean, it's, there's still so much unknown about the the depths of our oceans
1: yeah we know more about the surface of the moon and the surface of mars than we do about the the about the floor of our own ocean and of course our planet's covered by 70 percent water so we we know exceedingly little it seems yeah
0: agreed so where does this lead you i mean you're you're working on a new book um through the research of that new book you found all of this fascinating information about the titanic and other stories that we didn't even touch on Hmm. but uh but where does this leave you in your, in your research for your book?
1: Um, a lot of this has been kind of tangential stuff. I've, I've had an interest in the Titanic since I was younger. So in, in researching the story of the USS Scorpion, which is this U.S. Navy submarine that disappeared under very strange circumstances in the summer of 1968, I came back to the Titanic that way. Um, the current book I'm researching on Cold War Cold Cases, as is, is I'm currently calling it, Uh, is dealing with a lot of, we could say conspiracy theories, but also a lot of the unsolved mysteries of the Cold War. So uh, the disappearance of Raoul Wallenberg, who was a a Swedish diplomat and humanitarian who saved thousands of lives during the Holocaust in Hungary, who was um, detained by the Soviets at the end of World War II, right at the very beginning of the Cold War, and disappeared. And to this day, nobody knows what happened to him. Uh, the Sinking of the USS Scorpion that I mentioned earlier, possibly a chapter on Roswell, for that matter, because as listeners will know, you don't get the modern, you, our modern understanding of UFOs without the Cold War and the secrecy of the Cold War.
0: That's true. Yeah, we, talk, we talked about that at length on the, our last interview.
1: Yeah, and delving into stuff, stuff like that, um, I'm still in the research phase for that. I haven't done any kind of major serious writing on it yet. Um, so I, I have no idea when that would be coming out. I'm, one of my great ambitions is to write a Titanic book, but I haven't found uh, my way into that yet because there's an old saying, that there are the three most written about topics in history are Jesus Christ, the American Civil War, and the Titanic. Uh, so finding something new to say about any of those three is always the hard part. And, uh, but I, I hope one day to do a Titanic book.
0: Okay, that saying that you just mentioned, the three most written about topics. Is that true?
1: If it's not true, it ought to be. I'll wow. put it that way.
0: So Jesus Christ, the American Civil War, and the Titanic. That in itself right there is is an interesting topic to, to talk about at some point. We certainly have to have another episode in the future. And you know, I hope you continue to come on and contribute to the podcast uh, over time. But um, I'm, I'm going to try to wrap this up uh, for this episode. Is there anything else that we may have skipped over or you'd like to go into more detail about?
1: I think we've covered, I think we've covered all the bases uh, when it comes to the Titanic and some of the weirdness around it, when it comes to the paranormal at least, and what may or may not be down there two and a half miles down
0: good deal and so if anybody wants to get in touch with you and talk to you about maybe they have some inside information on any of the topics that we've discussed and want to contribute to your research how do they get in touch with you
1: i'm on twitter at kressel wright uh, k-r-e-s-a-l-w-r-i-t-e-s i'm also on facebook Uh, i have a page matthew kressel facebook and twitter probably the best ways of finding me and i do have a a frequently updated live journal blog, uh, timdalton007.livejournal.com. So you can find me at any of those places.
0: And you do respond to DMs on Twitter. I know that for certain. Do you oh, have yes. your DMs open to anybody, if, even if they're not following you?
1: They are. They should be open where anybody can send me, at least based on the number of uh, questionable uh, messages I've received with people wanting to send me pictures of themselves, shall we say
0: thankfully i haven't had that kind of weirdness happen on my account and anybody uh, out there who's thinking about doing it don't because you'll get blocked yeah please please don't what do you what are you working on now or what's going to be coming out soon that people can look forward to
1: so the next thing i've got coming out is a short story of uh, which will actually be out, due out on the 26th of this month, October, uh, 2020. So it may in fact be out by the time you hear this. Um, it's a kind of a Twilight Zone inspired short story called The Light of a Thousand Suns, uh, featuring a retired Thomas Jefferson at Monticello investigating a haunting. And it's even got a Cold War tie-in because JFK has a cameo in it. Uh, it'll be published in an anthology from a company called d Publishing called After the Kool-Aid is Gone. Uh, it's a politically themed dark fiction and horror Uh, And that'll be out, as I said, on the 26th of this month. Uh, You can go ahead and order it and pre-order it uh, for your Kindle on Amazon now for a mere $2.99. So I hope people will check that out.
0: So that's on Amazon. And uh, say the title again?
1: After the Kool-Aid is gone.
0: Uh, Great. Excellent. Well, that's a great place to to leave it. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon
1: thank you again for having me always a pleasure to come on and talk about my many and varying interests so i, I appreciate your indulgence and the listeners
0: okay man take care i talk to you soon